We all value intelligence, cognitive intelligence, emotional intelligence, social intelligence. But what about aesthetic intelligence? Why don't we ever talk about that? And what even is aesthetic intelligence? Join Pauline Brown, longtime luxury goods leader and founder of Aesthetic Intelligence Labs, as she invites her friends from the worlds of fashion, beauty, and design to discuss the power and purpose of aesthetic intelligence. We live in a world in which people clearly don't need more stuff. If anything, we're all trying to get rid of stuff. But there is something we all still very much need, and that is to feel alive, get inspired, discover new ways to express who we are. All that emanates from aesthetic intelligence. It's one of the few things left that doesn't rely on technology, and that's why I call it the other AI. For more on the power of the other AI, here's Pauline Brown. Hello, welcome back to the other AI. This is Pauline Brown. Um, I am here as usual with my dear friend and my business partner, Paula Oriel. Paula, good to see you again. Hi, Pauline. Great to be here again and listen to the second part of the, this luxury episode. So, um, we, it, it is interesting to me, you, you are based right now at, in Madrid, mm -hmm. um, and you have lived in Paris, you uh, have met, lived in, in Portugal, where we met, um, you have been, I'm assuming, to most pockets of Europe. Um, I have lived my whole life in the US, I've worked for European companies, I've studied in uh, various places of Europe, I am a first-generation American of European background, so I sort of think of myself as, as sitting between the two cultures, but still very much an American. What, what first thing I'm gonna, point I'm gonna make about luxury, um, and it's sort of ironic that I'm lecturing to you, Paula, who is European, is it is a distinctly European concept. So there really are no American luxury brands in the way that it has been defined by the European houses. Um, and I'd say the same, there are really no Asian luxury brands. Interestingly, even in Europe, the vast majority of the brands we recognize as luxury are Italian and French, which is not to say they don't make beautiful wines in Spain. Obviously, they make great luxury cars in Germany. But when we think of luxury and the, the main segments within it, it largely is in those two cultures. And there's a few reasons for that, but I want to come back to that. Um, and some of it is that because, it, it, you know, if you, if you um, remember from what I said in our earlier segment on luxury, that the whole sector and how we view it, our perception, kind of emanated out of the courts, out of the aristocratic courts of continental Europe. Um, and some of it is, is this, these are myth-building businesses, Right, and they often, like if you just take a Louis Vuitton, there was a Mr. Vuitton, he was actually a carpenter, he was not a aristocrat, but he made, as a carpenter, he made trunks for royal families in that first uh, era of steamship where they would travel overseas for months on end. And while they were traveling, they took basically their whole wardrobe, so they needed the equivalent of a closet. And Prior to his trunks, they used wood boxes. Those were the trunks. And the problem with wood is twofold. One, uh, it doesn't um, keep the water, th that you're on a ship for months on end, so the water seeps in, or the, the mildew and so forth, so it's not a, a very protective uh, uh, coating for your finer 
clothing. And number two, the problem is it's heavy. And you would stack them, because often they'd have many trunks. So his innovation, it really was an innovation in 1868, is he came up with this sort of treated canvas, which we think of today. It still has that LV mono monogram on it. And the treated canvas both um, was um, impermeable to the elements, and it was a lot lighter than the wood. But the reason I'm bringing it up is that a lot of these luxury houses, whether, whether they went back to the 1800s or in the case of a Dom Perignon to the 1600s or in the case of you know, a Gucci more to the sort of mid-1900s, whatever it is, they still came out of various pockets of Europe. And this is a business that's built on traditions, it's built on heritage, it's built on myths. And there are myths, every one of these houses have their myths and they do they spend a lot of money to keep those myths alive. Um, and, and, and so the, the reason I'm bringing this up is that there's a big part of what we call the luxury sector that's really just a culture. It's like a mindset. And the reason, for example, that you know, many Americans and Asians and other, you know, I would say it's no different in you're in the Middle East or in Africa or in South, South America, the reason that they love going to Europe and buying these fineries is because it gives them a piece of a history, a very glo seemingly glorious history that was not part of their, 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 their heritage. So there, there's a sense that it's exotic, that it's part of the discovery. And this idea that, the, that I, could, I don't need to go to France to buy Christian Dior, I can actually go two miles from where I live and I sort of sometimes say to myself, am I fooling myself to think I'm getting a piece of France when I go two miles from where I live? So I, I've kind of come up with this school of thought when I travel, and I love to travel. I haven't in a bit, thanks to the pandemic, but I will again. But I will not go in a store, wherever I am, whether I'm in Cape Town or Vienna or you know, Argentina, wherever I am, I will not go in a store that I could go in close to home. Like I'm, So for me, going back, Paula, to your earlier point, when I think of luxury, I really do go back to hard to find. And hard to find not because maybe it's, I have to go into a diamond mine and there's only so many diamonds, but hard to find because it took effort. Because I had to travel far and wide and it was something I discovered in some part of the world. And by the way, the part of the world could be the US, I could go I could go to Savannah, Georgia and see something about the Deep South that intrigues me and makes me feel that I'm part of that history. But that to me is very much what I feel is luxurious today. And the, the other issue, you know, I started off the prior show by saying I have this love-hate relationship with luxury. There's part of it, the artistry and the craftsmanship and the exquisiteness I love, the snobbery I hate, the exclusivity I hate. Uh, the commerciality, I kind of hate. I hate that, you know, I hate that um, a lot of these brands are preying on people and sort of giving them a false dream of status and so forth without really delivering in great value. And so um, when, when I think, like, there's certain categories that I would not, I would not do a luxury. Like, so, for example, let's talk about paint, house paint. Mm -hmm. The idea that Ralph Lauren has a brand of paint is like, is the joke on us? I mean, the paint, you know, paint is not luxury. 
um, you know, paint is, it's, it's basically the same acrylic chemicals coming together. So what am I really paying this premium for? Is it that I somehow have assurance that it's a more beautiful color than what I might get from Benjamin Moore? I mean, so there are elements of it where I feel like they, that, that some of the luxury companies make a bit of a mockery of the customer. And, and that's where I step back and I say, that's not the game I want to play. So let's go back to the current time, because you, you, when I asked you in the earlier segment, what is luxury to you, you said experiences, right? Um, and I'm assuming in that, because I know how, you know, I know your lifestyle and you value, you know, freedom and, and, um, and adventure. So like, what, what's the most adventurous thing, or the most, not the most adventurous, the most luxurious thing that you've done or experienced or acquired in the last year, notwithstanding the fact that COVID has limited us all. Mm -hmm. This last year, um, I, I'm going to talk about an experience and something I bought. So an experience would be a spa session with a friend. Mm. We went to this luxurious spa session and spent the day there in this amazing hotel in Portugal. It's mm. it's now the Italian hotel and it used to be the Italian palace. Mm. So that was the experience. And the item, um, I, get, I think I wouldn't call it luxury, but it's expensive. So, so it's a, a smart watch. Uh, but again, we can, like, it's so easy to find. So are we calling it luxury just because it's expensive? So I don't think so. I, so I don't think that's um, luxury. So I, I would stay with the, this past session. Yeah. And, and what made it luxurious was obviously the sensorial because, mm -hmm. you know, one thing you and I talk about all the time in Aesthetic Intelligence Labs is this idea that um, in a, such a, a preponderance of digital activity and digital stimuli that when we experience something that is non-digital, it's more profound in a way. Um, you know, and I think we, we're still grappling with, you know, is taking a walk in beautiful nature, which is so simple. It doesn't take a, you know, a fitness watch or any, you know, it doesn't take even a pair of sneakers to do it well. Is that really a new form of luxury? I mean, I'll tell you what luxury is for me. Um, you know, and I have kids that they're now, um, almost both out of the house. One is, is in college, the other is not too far off. And when I think back at the last 20 years between being a primary breadwinner, raising two kids, um, having um, a very demanding job that wasn't just demanding while I was there, but also required quite a bit of travel and extracurriculars. I was sitting on boards and going to a lot of you know council meetings and so forth. Luxury for me was time. And, uh, and to this day, even though I don't have that big corporate job anymore, I haven't for years, I still find when I, ha when I do nothing, like if I'm just, probably the closest I come is watching like a binging on a great Netflix show or so, and I'm, but for the most part, when I am non-productive, I feel indulgent. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and even when I go on vacations now, you know, uh, there's the agenda-driven vacations, like I'm visiting a new place and there are things to do or people to see, and, you know, so I don't quite 
have the leisure of, of time. But there's also vacations where you still are finding yourself checking your email and responding to things. So dead time is an interesting concept, or let's just say unproductive time. Hmm. Do you think about that? I mean, you're, you're, you're closer to a generation where the demarcation between, say, work and play is gone. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, I guess it I, I really appreciate time. I agree with you. I think time is the ultimate luxurious uh, thing we can have. But it makes me think, are we changing the definition of what luxury is? And mm -hmm. if it's time, what do you need to buy or to get okay. in order to have that time? So yeah. are we calling those, so a babysitter, for example, if you have babies, are you calling that babysitter the luxury um, experience? So because mm. it gives you time and is that? Yeah. Mm. It's interesting. I have a friend who um, is a, a very successful lobbyist, very thriving practice. And she's the first person I know um, who, you know, is self-made, who got herself a professional driver like a full-time driver. Now, she lives in New York City. She is constantly on the go. And for her, and I asked her, is that a luxury for you? Because that's a pretty expensive investment to have a chauffeur. And she rationalized that that allowed her to be maximally productive at work so that she could do things you know, while she was in the back seat. She's not hailing cabs. She's not taking a subway where she doesn't have access. So she didn't see it as a luxury. She saw it as a very um, uh, uh, sort of rational business expense. Mm -hmm. Whereas um, certain things I think of, like certain services that enhance my life, don't make me more productive, but actually make the experience of what I'm doing. So for example, if I fly um, first class, I don't get to the arrival place any sooner than if I fl flew in coach, but I feel a little more cared for. Mm -hmm. And there are times where I look at the price tag and I'm like, I just can't rationalize, you know, that upgrade. And there are times where I sort of say, you know, on that long haul trip, I can't, I can't bear the idea of sitting in the back and feeling like a piece of cattle like so I guess that I would see that as more luxury for me so and Pauline what do you think the difference is between luxury and an investment because I think your friend was investing in this driver to allow herself to work more uh, so is luxury something you're doing for no reason just to take care of yourself and an investment so you know it's interesting you say that because I've been noticing with a lot of these resale sites that the way consumers process the price tag is different. So back in the day, if I walked in a, let's say an Hermes store, and they told me such and such a bag was $5,000, it was, is it worth that to me? Or can I afford that? And nowadays, what a lot of consumers do is they walk in the store, they say, you know what, and the price has gone up a lot. So let's say it used to be 5,000, that same bag is probably 12,000. And then they say, but if I decided to get rid of it, I see that that bag or some variation of it is uh, sold for 6,000 on the real real. So even though it says 12,000, it really is only costing me six. And so it's interesting. And what, what kills me about that, I mean, on the one hand, I love the idea that rather than just putting something in the garbage or never to be used in the back of my closet, that I have another 
outlet for unused goods. I love that, but what I hate about that is it's also given license to the brands to take their prices way up. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like Chanel just announced that they're uh, in taking, taking price, uh, meaning that they're increasing price on a lot of their accessories. Vuitton just announced they're, take, they're taking price up on a lot of accessories. And they do it in part because they can. <laughs> and it's exploited, not because it's worth more, not they, they might say, you know, oh, with inflation or supply chain, it's got more expensive. It hasn't gotten that much more expensive for them. So it's greed. It's greed. So, so going back to your question about investment, uh, if it if it is a legitimate investment, is it still luxury? No, it is not. It is not. Um, the word luxury comes from the Greek word luxus, which actually means it's connected to the word lust. It means excess. Mm -hmm. um, and for something to be luxurious, while none of us are proud to say I live in you know and work in my case in the business of excess. But it kind of is, it's it's has no no added utility, no 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 practical no practical explanation. And the other weird thing is, anyone who's ever taken an economics class, you know, there's this law that applies to almost every product in every industry called supply and demand. In the luxury industry, and it, and the, the guy who came up with this theory is Veblen uh, from you know over a hundred years ago. It's one of the few industries where, in many a case, if you raise price, you can raise demand, that there is not the same trade-off. And I remember years ago, this is going back 15 plus years ago, when I was working at Estee Lauder, and they were thinking about the time Creme de la Mer, which was the, uh, the Lauder company's most expensive skincare line, had um, one of its uh, core products, its creme, its, its moisturizer, was I believe at the time $190, $190, which was kind of uh, shattering all the boundaries of what would what anyone thought a, a skincare brand could get away with charging. Now it doesn't even seem that <laughs> impressively high, but back then it was. And they decided to, to, to raise prices. I think they were bringing it up to 240 or something in that vicinity. And they were all concerned, and they did the math, you know, if we have a drop-off of such and such. What, cause, and, th and they did it in part because they actually had some supply chain, it's legitimate supply chain issues with production, and they just wanted to be able to make up for it on a limited supply, and they found that the demand went up. So it's a weird industry in the sense that some of the reason it has so much value is because it's perceived as so expensive. Any other industry you look at, if you raise price, you can inevitably expect there to be a trade-off. Hmm. It has a social symbol, too. So. And it is. It's a status thing. And what, what you find, you know, is that in, um, in countries that are new to luxury, so if you think of China, which has become the biggest market for luxury, Chinese consumers uh, account for about 40% of all luxury products bought. And what's interesting is 30 years ago, Chinese Consumers, which were still the largest base of consumers in the world in terms of mouths, were 1%. So it has gone from nowhere to the largest segment. And this is the first time in history where you have a market that um, is entirely a first-generation buying base. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to what I said in the first segment, that in America, Maybe it's become more pervasive. You have a lot of first-time luxury buyers whose parents or grandparents never could imagine buying a BMW or a Rolex watch. But you did have old money. You did have people who, you know, were sort of 
born into it or exposed very early. You always had that. China, you didn't have any of that under Maoist regime. So it's all new growth. And be the reason I'm bringing this up is oftentimes when people discover luxury for the first time, they don't quite know what to look for because it's not an educated population of luxury buyers. So the most obvious thing is look for the name and make sure the name is not counterfeit, right? That it's real, especially in China. And then, you know, and as you get more sophisticated, which happens over time, then you start to realize, well, it, just because it has the name on it doesn't make it cool or interesting or special. It's about the design, it's about how it was made, uh, it's about the stories that, you know, maybe it's even about the designer. And what we're seeing with China is usually it takes one or two generations to develop that level of sophistication. And I'm seeing just in 10 years a dramatic change. The Chinese are getting so much more sophisticated. Still not as sophisticated as, say, the Europeans, who are the most sophisticated because of the history. Um, but they're catching up. And as they do, by the way, the good news is that the luxury companies are going to have to... Um, they're going to have to be a lot more authentic in how they sell. They're not going to be able to just take advantage of, you know, a less educated population. Mm -hmm. so, so the other interesting thing, and this kind of connects with the point that I made earlier about this um, idea of sort of hard to find, hard to make, last forever, is that there, all luxury players are not the same, if you think of the brands. And the, the way I like to divide them out is in, I call them rule makers, rule breakers, and rule takers. So rule makers, they're usually the biggest companies and they're the ones who kind of set the rules for the rest of the industry. You know, if they are deciding, you know, we're gonna take our Paris week to Milan this year, I mean, like they kind of set the tone. So like in the fashion world, a rule maker on the luxury end would be like a Louis Vuitton, a Chanel, you know, Gucci at the moment. Rule takers, this other, are ones who copy the big ones. And they're usually kind of big, but they're not as big and they're not as powerful. And so like in the luxury fashion world, I might say like Coach doesn't have the pricing power of a Vuitton, doesn't have the cachet of a Vuitton, never will in my opinion, but it's still playing the same rules, playing by the same rules. A Michael Kors, you know, it's sort of playing by similar rules to Ralph Lauren, but it doesn't have quite as much of the edge or the authority. Um, even a Dolce & Gabbana, you know, a lot of those brands. That they're, and I think of them as like second tier. And then these rule breakers are ones that set up their own rules and often, if they work, and sometimes they can be reckless and we never hear about them again, but if when it works, it almost creates like a whole different way of going to market. So like in, the, in luxury fashion, I'd say a golden goose would be an interesting one of a rule breaker. I mean, it's a simple sneaker, but they, their way of communicating, their attention to a category at a time where sneakers have really taken off. Um, back in its day, uh, less now, I'd say Montclair was a rule breaker. Why? Because puffy parkas, which is what their business is built on, really were not items you would see on a runway or in collaboration with, you know, a Sakai and a Comme des Garçons and so forth. And their ability to kind of take ideas and, and sort of an avant-garde approach coming out of very edgy brands and into a world that we associate with like North Face. Like that, that was very rule-breaking, especially when they first came on the scene. Off-white. I mean, streetwear, which was growing in popularity, but streetwear did not compete with the what we, what we were seeing on the runways of Paris. And 
Off-White was able to, again, take elements of fashion authority, high fashion authority, and inspiration from the street, and all of a sudden come up with a very different concept that came together in a way that was rule-breaking. So, you know, it, and each of those different types of businesses have different challenges. For the rule maker, it's always a challenge of, you know, how do I grow? I'm already quite big. And how do I stay interesting and exclusive when I'm really quite broad-based? Um, for the rule taker, it's like, how do I compete with that big guy? Like, how does Target compete with Walmart? Um, you know, how, I mean, you're always going to be number two. And uh, is that good enough? Um, and how do I compete as well with these rule breakers that are nipping away with their sort of new innovative positioning? And then the rule breaker, it's, you know, how do I break through the clutter in the market? There's so much noise and, um, and there's a lot of competition. And by the way, a lot of rule breakers are cool for a minute and then they go away. I mean, the graveyard is full with once cool, hot, desirable rule breakers that never were able to evolve from there. So they each have different challenges. But, uh, and, and because of the speed of change in the luxury world, I would say the, um, the challenges here are even greater than what I see in other segments. So anyway, that was another mouthful. I could go on and on, um, and I'll probably have to because there's a lot more to say on, um, on the topic of luxury, not just where it's been and where it is today. But you know, one of the things I didn't even get to, which Paola, we have to talk about, and your guess is gonna be as good as mine, but it's an important one, are the role of NFTs, of crypto, you know, of the metaverse, I mean, and, and how that could, although TBD, but could redefine what we still think of as luxury in this new and uncharted water that we're all swimming in. You know, if you have ideas that you want us to cover in the future, uh, love to hear from you. Um, I'd love to hear from you. I'm not, you know, I haven't been able to persuade SiriusXM to let me take callers just yet, but I do read my emails. So, um, so feel free to reach out. And, uh, and thanks again, Paula. And thanks, as always, to Mark Aflalo. You have been listening to The Other AI. <laughs>